Well, everyone, it's Wednesday, and it's time to go inside of you. I know it's not Friday, but you know what happens on Friday. It's Black Friday. It's time to start our Christmas shopping. And we are excited that we are at Thanksgiving week. And I am officially going to say that we are in the holiday season. And speaking of the holiday season, the one who is always jolly, at least when I'm around, is the one we call Kelly Grayson. Kelly Grayson. KG, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Is, is this a point where I say ho, ho, ho? I mean, you could throw out a couple hoes if you want. makes no difference to me. <laughs> oh, man. That is <laughs> so open. I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to go there. Always but, Kelly Grayson. Oh, always must go. resist always the temptation. Gonna. So uh, one of the things I was thinking about today is that as long as I've we've been doing this show, mm-hmm. and as long as we've been doing shows the week of Thanksgiving, uh, you always seem to work on Thanksgiving. Is is that going to happen this year too? Yep. Yep. I'm working Thanksgiving this year as well. So it's just one yeah, of those what's things. Up with that? What's up with that? I mean, I, I, you got to talk to somebody about that. Well, uh, I originally planned to take off for Thanksgiving and, and plans fell through. So I, I uh, um, went ahead and worked those days that I would normally work anyway. I, I uh, canceled my vacation request, but yeah, for whatever reason, that's just the way it works out, man. It seems like uh, like um, my my work schedule the last four years has just put me working the holiday every single time. Crazy, man. That is the life of an EMS provider, isn't it? But uh, one of the things that I used to do is on Thanksgiving Day is uh, I used to give up Thanksgiving and even Christmas after my kids were older so I could uh, take a shift for somebody that had a family that could be home. And, um, you know, it was just different. When I was an EMS chief, I used to go up to the uh, stations and have uh, dinner with the folks on Thanksgiving Day to share so we could have a little family dinner as well. So, uh, you know, just a little practice that I had. But, you know, our our folks are out there, man. And let's remember those people when we're giving thanks, Mm -hmm. you know, as we're sitting around the uh, Zoom meeting having Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, then we get things for the people who are out there on the front lines, risking their lives every day, and even more so in the days of pandemic, that, uh, you know, give thanks that they're out there, man. And I want to thank you for giving up and working your day. But uh, we got a little thing to talk about, Kelly. You know, I sent you an article a couple uh, days back. I said, how is this mm-hmm. going to be for a discussion? And I'll let you set it up for the listeners. Yeah, we have this week in EMS One. This was published November the 18th. Uh, a story of a hospital suing the fire department to stop billing it for ambulance services. And basically, the hospital started a, a primary care clinic uh, as part of its hospital network. And um, uh, the the local municipality uh, has an ordinance that allows the the fire department to bill uh, for um, bill for non-emergent uh, calls, which is, is pretty much standard industry practice. Well, since they have implemented or, or stood up this this rural healthcare clinic, uh, they have been calling the EMS system at least a couple of times a week uh, for transfers, and the fire department has been billing them. And the tune of uh, since January the first, it's been it's close to three hundred thousand dollars that they owe, and the hospital is is suing the the uh, fire department and municipality to saying that the the ordinance that allows them to bill for their services is unconstitutional. 
I, you know, I've worked in private EMS uh, pretty much all my life. And, and uh, even if you're a taxpayer funded uh, system, it's still a business. You still have to make money. Uh, you don't have to make money, but you have to make enough money to provide for the, uh, the services and the salaries and the equipment that you have. And it's only fiscally responsible to, to not rely on the taxpayers for, for uh, only the, the minimum that they have to pay for. So what do you think about this, Chris? Do you ever run into this kind of, this kind of pushback from, from the people that call us? You know, I think that this is uh, what really struck me about this article is it's really, really different because in the past, EMS agencies were really eating this money. And yes. when we think about this from the standpoint of the uh, uh, agency, and I don't know that we want to talk specifically about this case because it may wind mm -hmm. up in court, but I think we want to be able to think about this from the standpoint of who is financially responsible when it comes to paying a bill for EMS service. And, you know, that's really the debate I wanted to have in this case, because if the physician is saying that this person needs to go to the hospital, they already are in care. And now they're mm -hmm. saying that you can't drive yourself to the hospital. We're going to go ahead and send you by ambulance. Then that ambulance trip needs to be covered by CMS they're not able to sit, stand, or walk, or whatever it is that we need to document to ensure that we get paid, or that hospital has to be financially responsible, or that agency has to be financially responsible for that transport. I just don't think anybody's pulled a trigger on this before, and that's why I find this to be a very, very interesting situation that I'm going to really want to follow to see how it plays out, because this could change the business. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I think that it's, it's an unfortunate truth that, that in many EMS systems, the hospitals uh, that routinely call us for transfers uh, um, really think of us as, as a free shuttle system. Uh, it's a, it's a, we're the make it somebody else's problem people. And uh, anyone who's ever done an inter-facility transfer uh, knows what I'm talking about when I say that some hospitals, uh, um, they... Uh, they simply don't want the liability and they want to make it someone else's problem. And quite a few patients who are called, uh, who an ambulance is called for, could safely be discharged and told to follow up with their personal care physician or, or drive themselves to the hospital. But for whatever reason, from a risk liability standpoint, uh, people are afraid, uh, physicians and, and hospital transferring hospitals are afraid of that. Uh, don't know why that is. Um, but, uh, we told a lot of people in ambulances from rural hospitals to larger hospitals that really do not need an ambulance. And if we're going to be real talking about it, uh, are not going to see a, a physician that they need in that hospital today. Uh, uh, been there, done that when someone had a scratched cornea, for example, on a Sunday, um, they're not going to see an ophthalmologist in the, in the hospital we're transferring to, but it was called in as an emergent transport, uh, from a rural hospital. And, and those, those stories are a dime a dozen. And honestly, I don't think it's a problem for the fire department to be expected, uh, to expect to be paid, uh, for the service that they're rendering. Uh, they have to be fiscally responsible to their taxpayer base as well. And, and uh, I, I don't think that they should provide that service for free. So I'm, I'm kind of siding with the, uh, with the EMS provider on this big shock. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we have to, I, I want to talk about this as an ARIO 
to see, you know, where let's work this down the line to see where the responsibility lies, right? So the the setup is is that this is a, a kind of an urgent care, primary care type of center uh-huh. that they are seeing patients that are coming in. And the thought is that we need to be able to get them to a higher level of care because of something that we can't do here, right? I mean, is that a good setup? Yeah, uh, yeah I, uh, I think that that describes the situation pretty aptly. Um, so then, I mean, so then they can't release the patient to drive themselves, can they? They're in the care of this facility. Can they just say, look, I think you need to be seen at the hospital, go ahead and get in your car that you came here with, and go to the hospital. I mean, I think now they're taking on that liability if they let them go. I mean, yes or no? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I've had I've had physicians at transferring hospitals that I've had pretty good relationships with that, that have done exactly that. Uh, you need to see a specialist for this. No, you don't need to see the specialist tonight. You need to see the specialist within the next 24 to 48 hours. I'm going to make you an appointment, or you can go in your car uh, and sit in the waiting room. Uh, this is not something that needs an ambulance. They've done that. Now, did they did they come under fire from their hospital administration for that? I, I do not know. I don't think it's a. I don't think it would be an Imtala violation. Uh, uh, well, it's we, not we Imtala. Our, yeah, we missed our opportunity to to have Steve Worth on to to expound on this and, and give us the the legal perspective on it. But um, you know, well, Imtala states. You know, it's Emergency Medical Treatment Labor Act. It states that they're entitled to a screening exam, uh, medical stabilizing treatment, and the hospital that they have presented oh, wait, at wait, wait, is responsible wait, wait. for transfer. What? Your key word there was hospital. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Now, that's, that begs the question, is this primary care clinic as so part of a hospital network? I don't even think I don't think it's an well, issue for hospital. I don't know. But anyway, it, let me let's let's an get back to care it. center. I don't know if Mtala applies. I really don't. But but they're supposed to to uh, to um, uh, arrange for transfer to to a higher level of care. It's the hospital's responsibility, if the, especially if the patient is is indigent and and does not have insurance. Uh, I'm sure, Christian, you had had similar setups with uh, with transfer agreements, and and virtually every private EMS provide. Uh, EMS agency has similar contracts. We'll say, okay, we'll agree to take out your patients on transfers and we will build their insurance for the transport first and foremost. But if their insurance doesn't pay, we'll make you liable for the bill at a, at a substantial discount from, from uh, the normal billing. Uh, and, and that's, that's part of, of just about every uh uh, hospital transport contract. Uh, I don't see why this this hospital system is balking against what I always thought was pretty standard industry practice. Well, usually what will happen though is that we we've built the patient. We've not built the yeah. We've not built the the facility, and oh, that's where this well, is changing. So well, you know, it, I, my experience uh, runs contrary to yours. Uh, most of those places where where the the uh, if the hospital calls for the EMS agency to transport a patient and for whatever reason, the insurance does not pay. For example, uh, the insurance doesn't, uh, uh, the insurance, the patient is uninsured or 
the patient doesn't meet stretcher uh, necessity certification uh, and their insurer balks at paying because they don't think an ambulance was necessary to get them from that hospital to the other hospital. Uh, in those cases, uh, we've usually made the hospital liable uh, for that bill. Did they pay? And the hospitals, yeah, they pay. Now, we've got some that steadfastly refuse to pay, but uh, hospital is a loose definition <laughs> for those. <laughs> We've got some that, you know, on that drop down list, it says, you know, what what is the uh, what service is the patient supposed to get at the receiving facility? And, and we need an additional option for needs real hospital <laughs> needs actual doctor. Uh, but any um, yeah, hospitals pay. So but I, I want to get back to the, the setting up the scenario. Right. So um, so now, uh, you know, your point is taken. They could, uh, doctor could say, go by yourself. I've actually seen it too. Or they say, you know what? Let me get you a ride. Let me get you an ambulance uh, to take you there. So uh, I, I think the determination has to be made. Why are they calling an ambulance? Is it because they're indigent and they don't have a ride? Well, I think that's a problem. Um, is it because that they don't want to take on the liability and they let them go? Something else could happen? Uh, I don't know. I mean, so that's another thing as well. But I would think... If the doctor is signing a release that says, call an ambulance, that means that that ambulance, quote unquote, I'm making the little finger bunny ear thing, uh, they should be liable that bill. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. You know, but, um, you know, and when you do a transfer like that, if you've never worked in a, in a transfer system, uh, there, there are two documents that, that pertain here. Uh, one's specific for Medicare and the other one's a little bit stronger and is, and is specific for Medicaid, but other agencies and, and other like Medicare and, and, uh, and private insurance, uh, insurers use that standard. Uh, one's called the PCS physician certification statement. And, uh, the other one for Medicaid is the MTC medical transport, uh, certification. And basically the, the, transferring provider, the, whoever uh, arranged for the ambulance, the, uh, the physician, the RN that, that uh, handed over the patient has to certify that this patient meets medical necessity, that an ambulance, not a, a van, not a stretcher, not a private car, that an ambulance is what's necessary to take these people to the hospital. And generally, as as uh, you know, as uh, private for profit EMS providers, even when that doesn't uh, apply, um, we make certain that that uh, you know people know that their insurance is not likely to pay for this, and and someone else will have to be responsible for the bill. Now, if it's a patient who insists on going to St. Farthest when uh, because their favorite doctor is there and he's 150 miles away, but another facility that could stabilize them and and render the care they need is much closer. Uh, CMS and their insurer is not likely to pay that bill. We need to make them aware of that. But when the physician uh, or, or the nurse, usually it's the physician, makes that transfer arrangement uh, and, and it's inappropriate to the patient's care and, and unnecessary, then I think the facility and the physician should be liable for that bill. Or the, the facility, by, by extension, uh, from the physician should be liable for that bill. I think that's perfectly uh, legit. And I, I think that the, uh, they don't appreciate how much it costs uh, and, and that, uh, you know, in, in this story, uh, the, the, uh, opening of this clinic was supposed to have reduced the call volume on the ambulance service. Instead, it's increased it by 10, 12 calls a month. You know, they, they said they call a couple times a week, uh, and, and most of them are for non-emergent calls. 
So uh, you know, I think it's fair that the ambulance uh, ambulance expects to get paid. And in another in another case or another thought is why are they calling the fire department EMS? Is there no transfer service? And I don't know. Maybe the answer is no. There's not. I mean, it may be the only game in town that they're not yeah, able to operate. Maybe. But they're calling the fire department. The fire department who's charged with the safety of, uh, you know, fire protection for that area. And uh, even though they have an EMS to answer 911 calls, are they in the transfer business? Well, I, I, I don't know. And that's, you know, that's one of the problems with, with uh, going from, from news stories because the reporting is often inaccurate or incomplete and we don't know the entire story. Um, but... I would say that you know, in recent years, it is not it has not been unusual for fire departments to bill for their services, even their non EMS rescue services, you know, and and fire departments have started to bill for responses outside their dedicated coverage area, you know, when they have a a, a mutual aid agreement and and it's only mutual on their part, and the other the other agency doesn't uh, provide the support, and and they'll charge to go put out a fire outside their jurisdiction. Um, and, you know, that sounds at first glance kind of mercenary. On the other hand, um, it's expensive. Uh, manpower, equipment, liability, the response itself, the capability to man that response is hugely expensive. And, and if the thing is, if the, the uh, capability is being abused in some way, uh, I think they have a right to, to bill for their services. They do this for, for rescues in many uh, fire department systems now. They go and, and charge people to cut them out of the, the car, you know. Um, but we're in, a, we're in an area uh, in an uh, age with, with dwindling tax revenues, and it's never been more prevalent as it is right now with, with so much going on with the COVID and, and everything else. And, and these agencies are, are hurting for money because taxes are, tax revenues are so down. Uh, what are you going to do? You know, I, I think it would be uh, um, improper of them uh, or irresponsible of them to leave money on the table if it is there. You know, if they can legally bill for what they need, uh, for what they're doing, uh, and there's a mechanism in place, I think they should utilize that mechanism. And, uh, you know, I think that this is going to be an interesting case, and I think that's one that everyone in EMS is going to follow, because this is either going to stop the unnecessary transfer, or it's going to increase the request for uh, transfers, mm -hmm. uh, because it's going to, you know, the make the patients accountable more for the dollars. But, uh, you know, it may come down to the fact of saying, we're, you know, we're not a taxi service. And unless it's a, a, a medical emergency, a true uh, life threat or potential life threat, uh, we have no obligation to take that patient out of mm -hmm. a, uh, out of a uh, you know, the care of a physician. But, uh, Kelly, it's going to be interesting to watch this over the next couple of yes. months. Yes, it is. And, and, and I'm going to step out on a, a, a fairly thick limb here by saying I don't think this is going to be the first uh, story like this we're going to read. These are going to become more and more common uh, because even even in today's healthcare environment, uh, you know, traditionally the the uh, the metric that, that CMS used to determine an emergency was the patient's perception that there is one. And that a different standard for justifying ambulance care and transport uh, was the standard was different for an emergent 911 call versus a transfer. And that that uh, 
patients didn't meet, need to meet stretcher necessity for 911 calls by and large. But that has been changing for several years now, and and they're they're starting to look at stretcher necessity for certain types of 911 EMS calls. Uh, and we're only going to see more of this. Uh, we're going to be fighting over who pays the bill. Uh, and somebody has to because uh, it ain't free. But, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Is it fair that the hospital should be expected to pay the bills for these transfers? Or do you think that billing for service, especially in transfers, is kind of mercenary and shouldn't be done? And we should find an alternative revenue stream to pay for this these sort of services. We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week. Hey, this is Rob Lawrence, host of the EMS One Stop Podcast. If you're listening on the SoundCloud, just hang on for one second because I'm coming along with the next episode of whatever my topic is this week. Bye for now.